Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have authored, well, you already know this, right? I say this every time. We've authored a lot of cookbooks, we but have. we have we're authored several on the Instant Pot, including the Instant Pot Bible and the Instant Pot Bible, the next generation. I so badly wanted to call it the Instant Pot Bible, the New Testament, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> Thank you. So the Instant Pot I'm Bible, really the next generation, two different books that are jammed full. We have to be sized out for every size of Instant Pot on the market, but we are talking in this episode of the podcast about someone who never, I assure you, never ever used an Instant Pot. <laughs> we have our one-minute cooking tip up. Bruce has an interview with the author of a Ukrainian cookbook, and we're going to tell you what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. I learned to cook on my own from cookbooks, and the cookbooks that I read were Jacques Pepin's and Julia Child's, and I cooked my way through all of their books. And Julia Child had a lot of books, more than Jacques did at the time. And I went through all of Julia Child books. I made every recipe and I learned from her. And I wanted to talk about her today. Yeah. Now, before we get off onto Julia Child, I want to say that Bruce actually wrote Jacques Pepin once and thanked him for helping Bruce learn how to cook, even though Bruce had been to chef school. <laughs> and Jacques Pepin was kind enough to give us a quote for a book, which was kind of amazing. He was very nice. He um, was very nice. We got a quote from him and Bette Midler, right, <laughs> on the same book. That's kind of an amazing <laughs> thing. kind of amazing. So um, I did not. And before we get to Julia Child, I just want to say I was not didn't go to chef school. I'm the writer in our pair. I <laughs> was an academic and taught writing for sure, but uh, I didn't go to chef school. But I learned to cook out of college off of Marcella Hassan. Mm. And it, to me, it was all Marcella Hassan. She was my first big introduction into, wow, big, important food. But there may be some things that even still you don't know about Julia Child. So we want to tell you some things that you might not know about this culinary icon. Well, you didn't know that we were given a Julia Child book signed for us as a wedding present. No, I suppose no one except the two of us know Well, that. and my old boss, Bethany, who gave it to us. Well, okay, fine. But yes, we were given a signed <laughs> copy of one of her books as a wedding present. That was a very nice thing. Julia Child lived a long and storied life, but did you know that she died at 92 yeah. and when asked why she had lived so long, she attributed it to red meat and gin. And I think <laughs> that if that is the secret of a long life, I have got to start saving more because <laughs> red meat and gin, that sounds about like what <laughs> what dinner is tonight. Mm. Mm. And Julia Child and I have a lot in common, actually, because before she started cooking, she wrote advertising copy. She did. Just like I did. I was an advertising copywriter and then a creative director, but she worked for a furniture company. She did, and she wrote those advertisements, and I think there is a way that you could make a claim that honing that craft of advertising writing allowed her to hone the craft of recipe writing. I know this sounds funny, but just think about it. You have very little time to say a great deal in advertising copy and it's the same, actually, mm. in the way that Julia Child created recipes and changed the way recipes are thought about. 
That is, she tried to pack as much information into that recipe as she possibly could. Some of her recipes are indeed longer than advertising copy, but I think it's that level of attention to detail which is so important to advertising copy itself. Yeah, and focus and making a point quickly without too much extraneous nonsense. I think that's right. At the start of World War II, she worked for the OSS, which eventually became the CIA. Mm, She she was a research assistant, and she got to handle top-secret documents. She did. Seems like a lot of people are handling top-secret documents. We're not going to go there, but (laughs) uh, yes, she did, and she did work. It's been said for a long time that she worked for the CIA, and that's that runs around all kinds of blogs and people who claim to have known Julia Child and but her friend. I mean, there's 80 million people apparently who were her friends, and they're all on social media. But nonetheless, she did not work for the CIA. She worked for the OSS, and she was a research assistant. She wasn't, you know, an undercover Cold War <laughs> spy. But she wasn't out fighting the Stasi. Yeah, and some people would have you believe that she was down fighting the Stasi at Checkpoint Charlie, but it's not true. And if you know what Stasi and Checkpoint Charlie is, then you're as old as I am, so good for you. Well, one of my favorite things that she did is she helped develop a shark repellent during the war. Shark repellent? Because bombs and mines, you know, were placed in the ocean for the German U-boats to hit and blow up, right? But sharks would often detonate them by bumping into them. So they got shark repellent, which they coated the bombs and the mines with, so the sharks so wouldn't go near them. This wasn't it, this wasn't in the thought of the poor sailors. It was the thought. It wasn't like I coat myself in shark repellent in case I go overboard. No, you coat a bomb in it so the shark doesn't <laughs> blow itself up, and the bomb is still there to blow up the U-boat. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> there, uh, shark repellent and cookbooks. Um, I'm not even going to draw the parallel there. She met her husband Paul. Child when he was stationed in Sri Lanka, and back then it was Ceylon. It was. Uh, about Sri Lanka, and it was he who taught her all about French food and cooking. Yeah. I think that a lot of people don't know that, but it was actually Paul who was, a, as we would say, a gourmand. He was, and she wasn't into French food or cooking no, until she, she met him. she was into shark repellents. She was into shark repellents. But then we all know what happened, and she became a household name, and she got her own cooking show on TV. And mm-hmm. when one of her later series, Baking with Julia, did you know that during the filming of that series, they used over a quarter ton of butter oh my gosh. in that series? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> a lot of a butter. quarter ton, the cost of that alone, a quarter ton of butter. And I think that if we had to talk about Julia Child, while she was a cookbook phenomenon, a phenomena, I guess, because she's she's a she, but it's also more of a truth that what she revolutionized was food on TV. Mm-hmm. That's what but she truly revolutionized and all the way out to Emeril Lagasse and Martha Stewart, they're all treading the walk that Julia Child they- all owe their career to her. Yeah, the, yeah they do. The wa- you didn't let me finish my metaphor. I had it. It was so pretty. We'll do it again. Twe- treading the walk that Julia Child bushwhacked. Oh, okay. Got there it. you go. <laughs> let me have my metaphor. Well, and she was the first woman inducted into the other CIA Hall of Fame, that being the Culinary Institute of America. She was. And it is... A testament to Julia Child that so much changed on the American food scene. I think that from
from my childhood forward, so much has changed in the United States food scene. It was rather grim when I was a kid. It is still grim on interstates, in my opinion. <laughs> but the food and scene, in rural Virginia. <laughs> the, oh man, we have a story about eating in rural Virginia that was just nightmarish but i can tell you that the table next to us uh the woman informed the table that she'd gotten a flip phone because she discovered that the bill collectors couldn't trace her on a flip phone the way they could on a smartphone good grief anyway um it was grim but uh uh it was pretty grim when i was a kid but the the u.s food scene of course has just exploded now and in 2022 when we're recording this it is just astounding the kind of restaurants that exist from mid-level all the way up to the mm -hmm. stratosphere. And a lot of that is thanks to Julia Child. Okay, up next, our one-minute cooking tip, our patented one-minute cooking tip. What is it? If you're looking to bake banana bread or do some other culinary dessert lovely things with ripe sweet bananas, but your bananas are not ripe enough, Bake them in their skins in a 300-degree oven for 30 minutes or until they turn dark brown. Then cool them and use them like you would any ripe sweet banana. It's really important that you cool them <laughs> yes. because they will destroy the leavening in yeah. any batter for, say, banana bread if they're even yeah. warm. No, they have to be cold. They have to go back. Just put them on the counter and use them later in the day or even the next day. But this is the tip for getting bananas not edible, but bakeable. Bakeable. Bakeable and cookable. Up next, Bruce's interview with Anna Voloshina, the author of the new Ukrainian cookbook, Budmo. Today, I am speaking with Anna Voloshina, author of a new book on Ukrainian food called Budmo. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Tell me about the title of your book and the significance of that word budmo. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Uh, so the word budmo is used in Ukraine uh, instead of cheers. And uh, it's the same equivalent, but the literal translation is let us be. And it has a very broad meaning of let us be healthy, let us be together, and let us celebrate. It's a very, very cheerful word. And we always say it before we click our glasses and uh, have our first drink, or second drink, or your third drink. So <laughs> we always say Budimo. And it's just like very, very cheerful. And I wanted to uh, incorporate that cheerful spirit of Ukrainian celebration, of Ukrainian gathering into my book and let people know uh, how beautiful Ukrainian culture is. Well, the book is beautiful. The photographs are beautiful. The food just jumps off the pages. And you talk about how regional Ukrainian cooking is. So can you give me some examples of what food specialties we might find in different parts of Ukraine? Uh, because of the USSR, at some point, food became very blended just because they wanted to reinforce like, OK, we have one menu. Everything is the same. Everything is standardized. But Ukrainian people are very rebellious and in small villages, everyone kept their own recipes. They cooked their traditional regional dishes. And if you will travel through whole Ukraine, you will see how the food is changing and closer to 
Russian border. The food is very Soviet style. There are a lot of Russian dishes like pilmeni, cabbage uh, soup. So a lot of uh, very traditional, uh, simple dishes. The closer you go to Western part, you will find more European dishes and more elaborate desserts like strudel. And you will find dumplings like vareniki. And they are not called vareniki in that part. They call pierogi, like in Poland, but in uh, the south of Ukraine, pierogi means totally different thing. Pierogi in uh, the south of Ukraine means yeasted, very fluffy fried pastry. They can be savory or sweet. And vareniki, aka dumplings, aka pierogies, we only call vareniki. But when you go to the western part, you call them pierogi. And it's so confusing, but it's so interesting to learn about that. And of course, in the south of Ukraine, we have a lot of vegetables. It's uh, not only the breadbasket of Europe, but it's the vegetable basket of Europe. So we grew everything there and it's beautiful, seasonal. And until I would say late 70s, in the western part of Ukraine, nobody knew what eggplant was. And my grandma, who grew up in the south of Ukraine, she went there, she brought eggplants with her and they thought they need to do some sweet stuff with them. So they didn't, they didn't know how to cook them. Maybe in some parts they knew, but the part where my grandma traveled, uh, which is Khmelnytsky, they didn't know. They wanted to boil some sort of a compote with eggplants. In the front of your book, you offer up a list of standard pantry staples for Ukrainian cooking. And most of those things, from what I saw, are available in U.S. markets. But one thing caught my eye that is not readily available, sear. Can you tell me about this ingredient and how important is it to Ukrainian cooking? It's one of the most important ingredients because we use it for everything. It is a very fresh, tangy, uh, yarn cheese made uh, usual with uh, cow's milk. And you just let the milk go sour or in the United States, it's very hard to do that because milk is very much pasteurized. So you add some Greek yogurt or kefir and let it sit for 24 hours up to uh, 48 hours. And then you just slowly cook it. You heat it. Uh, and when the whey separates and the cheese curdles and you just strain it and you have it. I have a recipe because I knew that it's not available throughout the whole United States. You can find it in uh, Eastern European markets, specialty markets. And it's not only Ukrainian cheese, it's also Eastern European. We call it differently, but it's basically the same stuff. And if you will look for it, you need to search for Tvarog. And this is the second name. In Ukraine, we use Sir, but um, this is our name for it. And it means cheese in Ukrainian. So it's like... We, we have a bunch of confusing names. So it means any type of cheese and specifically that type of cheese as well. So it's very important because it's a base for a lot of dishes, sweet and savory. Uh, I have a few recipes in my book. So I, I, I decided if I have so many recipes, then I need to include the master recipe for the cheese itself. And uh, I use it in my spreads. I use it as a stuffing for my dumplings and for my crepes. And you can make it in a very nice uh, Ukrainian cheesecake, which is a lovely, not too sweet dessert. Oh, that sounds delicious. In the appetizer chapter in your book, you have a recipe for beet pickled deviled eggs, lightly pickled cabbage salad, 
pickled mustard. So there's a theme going here. How important are pickled foods in the Ukraine kitchen? Oh, very much. First of all, we in Ukraine, we have all four seasons. And before the supermarkets came into Ukraine and until 2000, it was not a lot of those. Everyone relied on their preserves and pickles. And it's very important to capture the flavor of summer and uh, early fall. So we pickle and preserve everything. And since we very much found of vodka, uh, it's a great appetizer. And it's a, uh, we call it zakuska. So when you have a sip of vodka, it's like it's so, so nice to chase it with a bite of pickles. And it just like mellows the flavor of vodka and complements it so well. A lot of people in the U.S. know borscht as a cold beet soup, but you offer up three different versions of borscht. So tell me about them and how is how do they differ from each other? Oh, oh my God. If you travel throughout Ukraine, you will find, of course, different variations. And every region has its own specialty, like borscht with uh, smoked pears or vegetarian borscht or green borscht. And depending on the season, you will crave different style of borscht. For example, it's hard to eat this hearty, hot soup during the summer. So we have a cold version, which we call holodnik, which like literally means cold soup. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Ukraine, most of the time, you will find this typical red borscht, uh, hot borscht, not cold one. It's usually not vegetarian. In my cookbook, I decided to make it vegetarian just because I felt like, mushrooms and prunes are delivering and you don't have to add anything else like it's already hearty it's already rich it's good without meat you can make it with meat but you don't have to and it's very versatile and the green borscht it's something we do mostly during uh late spring and early summer because we have sorrel and sorrel is the key ingredient for borscht and i know people are like oh my god where can i find sorrel just ask around. Your neighbor might have it. And the more I ask around, the more I find sorrel <laughs> all over the San Francisco and Bay Area. At some point, I was searching at Whole Foods and smaller farmers market and I had no luck. But mm -hmm. now I can go to Ferry Building Farmers Market and they sell the most luscious, the most luxurious uh, sorrel. And right now we have a second season of sorrel. So wonderful. I'm enjoying that very much. So yeah, borscht is something you cannot pinpoint because every every single cook makes her or his own borscht version. It's like uh, we have a saying in Ukraine that no two borscht are the same and every hostess has her own recipe. So what does the word borscht mean? People are still debating on that. At least we, now we established that this is a Ukrainian dish. <laughs> Uh, huge relief, but uh, basically it does not mean anything, but people say it came from the plant, uh, Bolshevik, but this plant is kind of poisonous, so it's very vague relation. If you want it so much, you can boil it and add it to the borscht. So technically you can make borscht with this Bolshevik plant, but nobody does that i've never heard of it maybe it was long long time ago somebody did that but not to my knowledge in the main course chapter of your book there are some mouth-watering recipes from herring with pickled onions and new potatoes to lavash a flatbread wrapped around halibut and baked until crunchy with herbs you've got pork belly pork shank 
but only one beef dish, and it's it's a Crimean beef stew with chickpeas. Is beef not a popular protein in Ukraine? Uh, no, beef is not the main protein at all. So most of the time we eat pork. This is number one. And then uh, all sorts of poultry. And actually, turkey is not that prominent in Ukraine as well. But beef, uh, we use our cattle for milk most of the time because milk is such a staple in Ukrainian cuisine. We make uh, butter, milk, and uh, of course, sour cream, which is our favorite thing uh, on the earth, probably. <laughs> then when it's done producing milk, the meat is very tough and people sell it. But you, you can understand it's not a steak quality beef. And uh, I think only now and maybe five years, 10 years ago, people started to raise beef for steak prop qualities, but it's not the same. They, we don't have the culture yet. And people are trying, and we have like small producers who do that. But most of the time, we just import steak or like very quality cuts because we, this is just not a part part of the culture. And uh, we have uh, lamb is not also like something we eat regularly, but in the western part of Ukraine, where we have a lot of mountains and bunch of grasses, grass and like grass fields, and just just mountains we make uh sheep's cheese and we uh we eat lamb there but in the southern part of ukraine lamb is something like oh wow this is so exotic <laughs> you offer up quite a few filled dumplings and pastas and one recipe that struck me the sweet dark cherry vareniki mm -hmm. did i pronounce that correctly vareniki vareniki and you mm -hmm. top it with butter and sour cream tell me about this dish it just looks so delicious oh thank you so much it's not a dessert dish many people think it is a dessert dish no it is just a sweet main course and we usually eat it for lunch or for late breakfast in our family always late breakfast it's my husband's favorite late breakfast like brunch or uh, of course, he will ask for that. This is something I grew up eating just because in the southern part, we have gardens filled with cherry trees. And uh, on our backyard, we had five cherry trees. So every summer we had a bunch. So I had to climb and <laughs> pick them up. And then my mom would just, oh my God, that was horrible. She would say to me like, okay, you have a bucket of cherries. You have a safety pin. Now you need to remove all of the pits. But it was nice. It was outside. I would just like sit there under a cherry tree and just do my work. It was like a chore for me. And after that, you'll just look at your hands and they're all black because they're soaked in those uh, juices. So yeah, and after that, we would preserve those uh, during winter, we could use the and my mom learned to freeze everything early. So we would just uh, either unfreeze cherries and make uh, dumplings. And I think from frozen cherries, it's as delicious, if not more, because I like the texture after the freezer better. It's just slightly, so not slightly, much softer. And it's so delicious. And you can enjoy this dish uh, in winter as well. Well, that might not be a dessert, but I want to end... Um, our conversation by talking about Ukrainian desserts. You write that honey cake and caramel top meringues can be found throughout the country, and those both sound delicious. But there are some more regional specialties. So tell me about desserts you grew up with in the southern part of Ukraine. 
So when I was growing up, it was 90s and the country just emerged uh, from the USSR and we had a brand new country, but we had the old Soviet recipes and everyone would cook the same cakes, but like somebody would make it better. <laughs> somebody would just like not as successful. But basically we had old Soviet books with approximate recipes, never exact recipes, just like approximate amount of stuff. And if you are a talented baker, you would make them. And uh, the southern part, eastern and uh, northern part, they were all making those cakes like Spartak, honey cake, very traditional, very um, Soviet. But when you travel to the western part, oh my God, then you can go and sit in a very much European cafe have some real coffee and have some desserts that were influenced by Austria or Hungary and like different cakes, very elaborate pastry, very beautiful, delicate. In our part, it was just more strict, like USSR, you know, like this uh, very <laughs> weirdly shaped, like square or round cakes, nothing fancy. They're delicious, don't get me wrong. But when you travel, you see the difference and you see like the atmosphere when you go to, uh, when I was little, we could buy those meringues at a pastry store. And it's very simple. It was like very like grumpy ladies selling those pastries. And some of them were good. Some were, were not good. But when you go to Lviv, it's just like Paris. It's Everyone is smiling. It's so pretty. And it's just very lavish. So now it's, it's everywhere like that. And I'm so happy. But when I was growing up, it was like, oh my God, why our uh, pastry ladies are so crumpy. And there you go. And everything is so wonderful and different. So what are some of your favorite recipes in the desserts that to you represent the new in Ukraine? So it's not about the new, but for me, honey cake. And the, the recipe is very simple to make. It's very simple. It's so delicious. It's very much Ukrainian to me because it's not as dense and it's not as like layered as the recipe you can find in uh, Austria because it's like, I don't know, for me, it's slightly denser than I, I like. And this one is very light, it's flavorful. And of course, we mixed in sour cream into our frosting. Like, of course, because sour cream must be in every dish. That sounds absolutely delicious. So Anna Voloshina, thank you so much for sharing some time and talking with me about Ukrainian food. Great good luck with your new book, Budmo. It is all about Ukrainian food. It's a delicious looking book. The photos are fabulous. Great good luck with it. And thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, thank you, Bruce. Thanks for having me. I uh, was happy to share a little bit of my food culture. And please pre-order Woodmo. And the publishing date is September 27th. So thank you so much for supporting me. Ukrainian food. So it's got to be partly really hip. I know it's really terrible to say something's hip because of a terrible war and massive casualties in a country almost obliterated in parts. And yet at the same time, I think that people like me have never thought much about yeah. Ukrainian cooking. There's a Ukrainian restaurant that used to be in the East Village. And when we lived in New York and when I was in college in New York, I used to go there all the time. And it was 
it was really good stuff. It was lots of dumplings and fried food and sour cream, lots mm, and lots right. and lots of sour cream. Yeah, but yeah. new Ukrainian cooking is really good. It's really interesting. And I, I'm, I'm glad that she's bringing this to people. Yeah, it's very interesting. So thanks for that great interview. And our final segment, as is always, what's making us happy in food this week? And I'm going to go first again. I never go first. I always pass it to Bruce. But I'm going to go first. And it is... Corn in salads. We live in an area in New England in which the corn is in. We live all year for August. It doesn't come in until mid to late August here in our part of New England. And wow, we have been eating a lot of corn in fresh chopped salads. Bruce sometimes just microwaves the ears, right? And cuts it right off the ear. Sometimes he steams multiple ears and keeps them in the fridge and he slices the kernels right off the ears with chopped tomatoes and chopped cucumbers and corn and little red onion. Mm -mm. What's making me happy this week is corn and salad. (laughs) <laughs> we I'm... don't we don't rehearse this beforehand, <laughs> and we don't know what either of us is going to say. So that's very funny. I think uh, it's been we, we eat a lot of chopped salad, and I love chopped salad for lunch. I love a chopped salad with hummus for mm-hmm. lunch, and we eat a lot of chopped salads. And somehow we got off on this kick this summer of putting corn in with the tomatoes and cucumbers, and it's so because neither delicious. of us really like eating corn on the cob, so I cut it off. But it's funny because we had a I ch- like it, but it's not you know I mean it's all right, it's all right. Right before we recorded this episode we had a big chopped salad with corn for lunch and today i actually put it in raw i cut it off you know corn is the only whole grain that you can eat uncooked that's right and i cut it off raw it was so fresh and i put it in and the way i dress this chopped salad that mark talked about with those vegetables is some good old inexpensive red wine vinegar really good olive oil, salt, pepper, and a pinch of dried oregano. Yeah, it is a really great, easy dressing for a chopped salad. Mm-hmm. Add a little red onion, add some celery, tomatoes, cucumbers. cucumbers. It, it's it's fresh vegetables. It's raw. It's good for you. Mm-hmm. And it tastes really good with a little hummus underneath it on the plate. Delicious. So that's our podcast for this week. We hope you enjoy cooking with Bruce and Mark. We're glad you're here with us. If you want to talk more about Julie Child, if you shook her hand, if you met her, if she backhanded you at a book event, I don't know what happened. If you've got a story about Julia, check out our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, where this very podcast will drop once it airs. And you can connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook under our own names. We would love to be connected to you. And we will hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. <laughs>